Hello everyone, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode and every episode that you listen to loving the weather just that little bit more. Hi, I'm meteorologist Gemma. Hello and I'm meteorologist Ashling, and today we have Jenny O'Rourke with us who is Head of the Real-Time Service and Systems Operation Division at EMUSAT. And if that isn't quite enough before then, you worked for ECMWF. And if that isn't enough before then, you worked for the Met Office. But you probably have more experience than myself and Gemma put together. And I know this <laughs> is a recent endeavour of yours to up sticks and move everybody. And you're now working at EMUSAT, which is just amazing because obviously satellites give us so much power and weather. But Jen, you were very, very, very welcome to for the Love Thank of Weather you. podcast tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I should say... Uh, guten Tag, as I am joining you from Germany. <laughs> Hello, wie geht's es Ihnen? So we start every episode by just asking your guest, Jenny, where was the first spark of joy or the first time you thought to yourself, uh, I kind of like the sky and clouds? And I, know, I, like I know exactly when it happened. So... When I was about, well, I think it was 15, I did my work experience at Leeds Weather, Weather Centre when it existed. It's no longer there. Everything got centralised. But but back when I was a teenager, uh, I went to Leeds Weather Centre and I had one week and the weather observer took me under his wing and I did the weather observations with him. I, I made the, the pictures that went in the uh, in the newspaper. And by the end of the week, I'd learned a little bit about clouds and weather, but I just, I developed a real passion for knowing that that's what I wanted to learn more about. And I knew that I only wanted to study meteorology. And when it came to my UCAS forms, I only put meteorology, meteorology, meteorology. And it, it's just been a one-way street ever since. <laughs> Uh, I was always interested in geography. I always loved the world around me. I was interested in learning about drumlins and landscape and sort of the weather that formed it and glaciation, volcanology. But it wasn't until I stepped foot in Leeds Weather Centre that I realised that I wanted to be a weather forecaster. Oh, the little spark of joy. I can, I can, almost, I can almost feel it. So take us on a little journey from, okay, you, you leave school. Mm. How on earth do you become head of real-time systems and operations at EMUSAT? <laughs> like, how did that happen? Well, I, I mean, I would never have seen it coming, to be honest. I left, when I went left school, I went to Reading University to study meteorology. Um, I wanted to go straight to the Met Office to be a weather forecaster, but at the time they weren't recruiting. Um, I mean, this often happens as cycles of employment and, and, and harder times, isn't there? So at the time, it wasn't easy to, to get into weather forecasting. So I was looking around and I saw a PhD uh, at University College London. So I went there to study um, East African seasonal rainfall prediction, did a PhD in that. And then at the end of the PhD, they were starting to recruit forecasters again. So I applied and I joined as a trainee meteorologist at the Met Office in Exeter, moved my husband down there with a, we got two kittens. <laughs> that was the start of our family. And then I, I just um, worked my way up the operational ladder at the Met Office, doing different things, which we can talk about. 
lots of 50-50 work. So I tried things that are other than just pure forecasting as well, some science, some government coordination work, um, space weather, and natural hazards, all loads and loads of stuff at the Met Office. And then and that, that's where I had my two, um, I had two, two girls while we were there as well. So which that was a bit tricky doing shift work and having babies. And then, uh, and then it was just a sort of um, series of opportunities that I saw adverts and applied for. So I saw the one at ECMWF, the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecast. I had three and a half years there. And then just recently last year, moved to Germany to UMetsat in Darmstadt in Germany. And, and that's where I am now. Such a privilege to know <laughs> you. I, honestly, I just, you're so talented. I just, an incredible journey. Tell what is your about. role? Yeah, I'm saying, what does your role at UMets that involve now? That sounds really interesting. Yeah, so I'm a senior manager there essentially. So I'm within the operations um, department, and my division is responsible for all the real time services and system operations. So what that means is, um, well, I should explain a little bit about UMetsat. So, so the organization itself is responsible for maintaining, operating, flying meteorological satellites and exploiting the data. So that means actually getting the data out of, from the satellites into what we call the, the ground segment, processing the data and getting it out to users. And some of the main users are um, the people that generate weather forecasts, numerical weather prediction. It, you know, this, the satellite data goes in to feed the the weather forecast models um, but it's, it's the data is also used to monitor climate change and things like that so my my teams are responsible for receiving the data on earth um, from the antenna that we have uh, at the ground stations processing the data um, and disseminating it out to to users giving it out to people who need it i'm tempted to um at, you know ask that very journalistic question why should we care about weather satellites? So I'm going to go ahead and do it. <laughs> Why should we care about weather satellites? Well, um, I guess not Not everyone will care about weather satellites, <laughs> but but a lot of people do. And especially if, if you're interested in, in weather um, and meteorology, because a huge, a significant majority of the skill that comes from the weather forecast is due to, uh, the satellite imagery, the satellite data that's fed into it. Um, and the reason for that is if we don't know what's happening now with the weather, we can't forecast into the future. Okay, I mean you've got to have good um, good equations in there, good models, good good prognostics. But without knowing what's happening now with the weather, we're we're scuppered. So um, the satellites give us a coverage of the whole world. You know, without it, we'd be relying on on pinpoint. Uh, you know, weather stations like like they used to do in the olden days, you know, somebody going out and taking a weather observation, um, getting the, the pressure readings and the temperature. I mean, even, even when that's automated, it's still just pinprint locations around the world. So the satellites are constantly looking down at Earth. They're either geostationary, where they're constantly looking across the one part of the Earth's disk, or they're polar orbiting and they're going round and round and round and, and giving us this uh, uh, higher resolution scan of the Earth. Um, so they're providing us with lots and lots of detail about, about the atmosphere, about the Earth, and that's, that, that is then in, in near real time fed to the numerical weather prediction models, and, and that's why we can get such fantastic um, skill in our, in our forecast these days. 
I'm you know fascinated what, by satellites. I know, so am I. Like, and actually, I think the thing is as well, people don't really realize that they affect everybody just about how you go about your business, how your trains are running. I know it goes back to the basic forecast, but like the basic forecast is because we have that crazy amount of information being yeah. fed in. Yeah. And um, I mean, even even just to look at the satellite imagery, you know, I think everybody on their smartphone who's got a weather app, they can probably see a satellite image. And 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 so even just for for everybody who's not a meteorologist, they 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 look at satellite imagery. They might not realize it what it is, actually. They might. They're so used to seeing pictures of the Earth from above. They might not realize it's even from a satellite, but it is. I mean, there's the meteorological satellites are very special because they really are um, 24-7. You know, they, they we require that data constantly. There's a lot of satellites up in space that are more for science purposes. Like, you know, people, people have heard of these great ones like the Hubble telescope that are sat out there doing great uh, science discovery. If that went down for a day or two, um, the impacts wouldn't be as severe as a, as a, as a weather satellite going down for a day or two. Because for science, it it can be put on hold for a few days, whereas for operational purposes, what we call it for 24-7 operational services, like a weather satellite, if, it, if it's gone for a few hours, uh, the, the, the weather models can't, well, they, they will, the, the weather models will run, but they'll be of poor quality. Um, so we're, we're really um, careful to make sure that the satellites are well-maintained and that uh, all the processes that are involved in in handling the data and getting it out to people um, have got people on call, people on standby ready if anything goes wrong. It's a really interesting environment to work. Roughly how many weather satellites are there up in space at the moment? That's a, that's a very good question. I mean, you met set responsible for around 10 operational satellites right now that are in space. They've all got a life cycle and, uh, you know, some of them have already been decommissioned. We've got others that will be coming online in the next few years. But that's just for UMETSAT. That's just for the European meteorological satellites. In America, um, NOAA is the organization responsible for their meteorological satellites. They're the GOES satellites that some of you will have heard of. Uh, So they're responsible for those. And there's a whole um, coordination group of meteorological satellites um, that's across the world. So it involves America and Europe and Japan uh, to make sure that across the entire world, we've got a distribution of meteorological satellites over the Pacific, over the Indian Ocean, over Europe and, and over America. So we all work together to make sure that we're providing sort of the same same products, the same and, and, and that the coverage is there across the whole world, because obviously, um, we care about more than just what's happening over Europe. A lot of our weather comes from from uh, from the states, that sort of direction, or um, you know, occasionally from the east as well. So um, we need to know what's happening all around the world, and so we work together. And I don't, I can't put my finger on exactly how many satellites that adds up to, but it, it it's got to be quite a lot when you consider that you met set alone have got ten operational ones. I mean, you think about it in in context of all the different agencies. It's a good few, good, good number of them up there. Yeah, and and that's just the operation. That's the what we call the fully operational ones. These important twenty four seven ones. There's there's a lot that are sort of developmental. Let's say so. There's this one called um, Aeolus um, that that was the first um, lidar in space to be looking to. You know, we have lidars on Earth, which uh, which are light emitting uh, to detect uh, precipitation and things and. Aeolus was the first satellite that was had an operational 
type LIDAR from space looking down at Earth. Um, a lot of these are, um, these sort of prototype science experiment ones are, are done by ESA, the European Space Agency. And then if it's deemed to be valuable, which that one was, in fact, the data from Iolis was, was uh, taken by many um, numerical weather prediction centers and put into their model, then uh, operational centers such as UMETSAT look at those and say, right, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, work with our partners to develop another LIDAR satellite as a proper operational one. And in fact, that's exactly what's happened with that one. And we're, we're just starting the development of, of, of the second IOLIS satellite, which UMETSAT will be um, providing in, in a several, just a few years. I literally am so shocked. First of all, I didn't know there was, they had a LIDAR already in space. I used to work with LIDAR imagery, mm. or LIDAR data, a long time ago. Yeah. It's actually blowing my mind to think that they yeah, it's quite a sensitive instrument. It's yeah. quite a sensitive instrument to have on wow. a satellite, and they weren't sure how it would work. That's why they do a prototype. Um, but it's um, it's been operational for over two years. Um, in fact, they've they've been assimilating the data into the ECNWF model for for just over two years now. I think so. It's quite impressive. I mean, it's it, it's. They, they learn the hard way with with some of these things, you know, um, they learn about some of the tolerances of the instruments, they learn about how to react when it goes wrong, they, they learn a lot of uh, tips on these prototypes, so to speak, and then when it, because it's, it's a fully operational meteorological satellite, it has to be quite robust, we want it, the lifetime of our satellites is often 10 or 20 years, it's going to be in space working 24-7, so we need it to be robust. Can we talk a little bit about the satellite that you launched last December? Because mm-hmm. um, it sounds really awesome. I watched the launch online because I was just like, this is fascinating. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that satellite and why it's yeah. important for mm-hmm. weather forecasting? Yeah, so that, that particular satellite was we called Meteosat third generation Imager 1. <laughs> it's a very snappy name, MTGI1. Meteosat is, um, there's been a whole series of Meteosat satellites. Um, I think they've been spanning 30 or 40 years, okay? This is very old technology at the beginning, but it's, it's evolved a lot over time. So we're on the third generation of this type of satellites. They're geostationary satellites, so they sit uh, over the equator, over Africa, looking down um, across Africa and, of course, Europe. And this, this one is really super interesting for, for meteorology because all the other Meteosat satellites, the first and second generation, they had sort of the standard imagery that you're used to seeing as a meteorologist or, or as, as a member of the public, uh, the sort of visible imagery, the infrared, and, and all different parts of the spectrum that people can play with to make what we call derived imagery where you can see volcanic ash, you can see Saharan dust, it's got really cool imagery. Um, Meteosat third generation has got even more parts of the spectrum that scientists are going to be able to play with to give meteorologists uh, different fields to examine. It's also got another, it's got higher resolution imagery and it's going to be more frequent. It's got a new instrument on board which is a, is a lightning imager. So this is, I think, I believe it's the first time that an operational lightning imager will, will be on an operational satellite. Uh, again, this sort of thing's been prototyped, but um, this is this is going to be the first operational one. And basically, meteorologists until now have, have been relying on a ground network to detect lightning. 
And we don't have um, a lot, it's not very accurate over um, parts of Africa, the ocean where there aren't very many um, detectors, let's say. So obviously now it's gonna be from a, ge a geostationary satellite, we're gonna have this fantastic coverage of the whole disk, uh, whole of Africa and Europe. Um, it's gonna be quite very timely. It's gonna be fantastic resolution. Um, so for meteorologists, this is a bit of a game changer for how they can ob observe severe thunderstorms developing, for example. So not only are they gonna have higher resolution, more frequent imagery, they're also gonna have the lightning detection. And it, MeteoSat third generation isn't just an imager. There's the next follow-on satellite is gonna be what they call a sounder. And, and the sounder will actually take a vertical profile of the atmosphere across the whole of Africa and Europe. So, you know, this is the type of thing meteorologists are used to getting from a weather balloon. When that goes up in the air, it takes what we call a vertical profile of the atmosphere. It's taking the, the temperature, uh, the pressure, etc. And that's how we know what's happening in the atmosphere. Uh, once we have the sounder in operations, we're going to get that same view, but from the from space downwards, if that makes sense. And that will also be able to be fed into numerical weather prediction models, into weather forecast models, which we've never ever had before. So the scientists, the technical people behind the scenes are getting prepared for this data, but what, what we do with it and how it improves the forecast is yet to be seen. So this is a really exciting time for, for the meteorological community, to be honest. I have one word in my head, wow. <laughs> I mean, me too. <laughs> wow. I made a joke the other day. I wanted to be a Teffygram. Like, <laughs> like mm. that's insane. It's going to, I mean, it's a huge amount that's of data. It's a huge amount of data that's going to wow. be available. Yeah. So, this is, this is a challenge, you know, it's a challenge for the, for the forecasters, for the, for the meteorologists, the scientists to know how to, what to do with this data. But, and this is your chitter chat every day. Just, oh, how yes. creamy. <laughs> so amazing but honestly I, I that's just unbelievable everything you've just explained there it's <laughs> it's unbelievable wow I guess what, the trick will be then trying to figure out what to do with the data what to oh do with the data God. yeah how do you filter this mm. when can we expect to see the data being fed back to us from and available to us to use from the satellite that's um, been launched so for, for the one that was launched we're, we're we're at the moment in a period called commissioning which means we're um, essentially turning on all the instruments one by one, doing tests, checking everything's fine. When it's not fine, turning it, <laughs> protecting it and uh, fixing it. And um, there's a whole iterative process that's going on right now. And this will take a while. For example, we're not really expecting to see the first image from, from Meteosat third generation Imager 1 until the spring, late spring this year. And it won't be till towards the end of this year that it will probably be fully uh, declared fully operational. Clearly before then, whatever data we get, um, we'll make available to, to sort of a subset of, of, of users who are ready to sort of just test the data and help us decide if it, when, when, when we're ready, basically. Um, but it does take almost a whole year to commission a, a complicated satellite, a complicated meteorological satellite. That's, I'm just I'm still in shock at the idea that might be profiles <laughs> for everywhere in the world like that's gonna put me in for job <laughs> no I mean this is something that people say actually oh, you know yeah. about all sorts isn't it about machine learning about mm. these you know oh, 
are we going to need human forecasters but we always will we need people yeah. to interpret it and communicate it so I have got um a question for you and I've often wondered this so I am forever you know I'm amazed at the how they managed to I mean you know you mentioned about um you know they test it and when it doesn't work I was in my head I was thinking haha turn it off and turn it back on again kind of thing is <laughs> whatever um but really what you're doing is you're actually you're somehow managing to use future science because you have to like it takes so long to actually create and make these things mm. they have to be completely relevant and up to date at the time of launch like how does that kind of timeline actually work? How do you yeah. find well, a bunch of scientists who can see who can make future science now? Yeah, like that's, that's a good question. It that's a really good question. I mean, when I was I went to um, a launch celebration for the satellite back in December, and one of the scientists that was there was recruited to Metsat twenty years ago to start the development of Metsat third generation. So it's literally been in the pipeline for twenty years. Can you believe it? And it's still yeah, very, I won't say cutting edge, but it, it's very relevant technology. But it's going to be, as I say, in operation for, for 10, possibly 20 years. So when you think about the satellites that are up there now, um, that have been there for a while, it is quite amazing that the quality of, of, the, of the imagery that we see, considering how long ago that was first developed. I mean, we've just got some fantastically talented people working on it, that's sort of all I can say. And it's a huge collaboration effort as well. It's not just people sat in Darmstadt, you met, sir. it's collaboration with industry. We work with, with ESA, um, huge collaboration with, with people all over the world. Like I said, the NOAA and the Chinese, the Indian um, equivalents. Uh, we all work together, but technology can move very quickly. I mean, we're, we're seeing now with, uh, with things like machine learning, there are, I went to a presentation recently where they're talking about, you know, in, in a in a prototype sense, you could use machine learning to um, think about how to control satellites. I mean, this is something we're not we're we're a long way from doing, and I'm not sure uh, what what you met that stances on that yet. But it's interesting just to see the technology that's out there, and and who knows where we'll be in in thirty years time. You know. It's pretty, pretty. Well, somebody does. Somebody who's hired now today. <laughs> well, no, well, no. What's going to happen? You mentioned quite a few times about international collaboration, and I think probably my one main loves actually of science is because so often when we speak to scientists, there really is not any boundaries in international science, and I think it's such a wonderful thing. No matter where you are in the world, scientists collaborate. Yeah, all yeah. the time. I mean, even even during wartime, you know, this is meteorologists were exchanging weather data. It didn't stop because it's so important, that exchange of, of scientific information. Yeah, so it's something that I really love. It's one of the main reasons why I um, I worked at ECMWF and UMETSAC, because they're, they're, they're both what we call intergovernmental organizations. So they... Um, a lot of people know about ESA as European Space Agency and, and the United Nations as examples of intergovernmental organizations. People from all over Europe can apply for jobs at ESA. You saw it with the uh, astronaut uh, recruitment campaign, for example. Um, so it's the same at UMETSAT. People from all over Europe can apply. And it's not the European Union, because um, despite Brexit, you know, uh, people from the UK can uh, apply to work at UMETSAT. But it's a fantastic 
buzz about the place because everywhere you go you've got different accents you've got all the greatest minds from across Europe coming together to work for for a common purpose and um, yeah I really love it and it's good for um, I, I think it's good for my family as well I really like it for my children I like it that we've had the opportunity to come to Germany and they're they're mixing with people from all over the world so it's yeah I really am inspired by it as well if um, people love satellite imagery as much as I do, I mean, they're beautiful. The man that you can see from a satellite image, there was yeah. one the other day and you can see the back edge of the front and the showers moving in behind. It was absolutely beautiful. But if there's someone out there that's interested in weather and they want to go and look at more satellite imagery, where would be a good place that you would point them towards so that they could uh, view that? That's a, that's a very good question. I mean, there's there's lots and lots of websites that 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 you can use um, if, if they're interested in in the satellite data that's coming from UMETSAT, they can go to UMETSAT, UMETSAT.int, um, and we have got a data, uh, a sort of way of uh, viewing the data there. So it's very um, easy for people to these to just go online and find the data themselves. It's they don't have to dive into an archive and have complicated programming skills. It's all very easily available now. So. It's the same with with the with the weather forecast data as well. You know, when I was at ECMWF, there's a whole open data section where people can browse the forecast for free. So I think basically all all of uh, what we're mandated to to provide at UMETS that's freely available. Um, there's there's lots of other websites that you can. I mean, people pay for 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 different websites that provide them with a mixture of. Of, of satellite imagery and weather output but I don't think you've got to pay I think there's a lot that's freely available and you can just have a good old play and browse brilliant and one other question I've got for you actually is a question that we've um we've uh, wondered um often me and Ash we've had yeah. chats about it um, but so, so when you launch the satellites obviously the weather must play a role mm in that as well so what sort of things are you looking out for when you're uh, launching the satellites what sort of things would mean that you may delay the launch or postpone the launch to, to another day yeah well that's a good question um, I mean the you met satellites are launched out of um, French Guiana because they they need to be at that sort of latitude to get it up into the what they call the geo-ring where the, the geostationary satellites sit um French but, Guiana the, the I was looking geo- geo-ring the geo ring is what they call it, the geostationary orbit where all the geostationary satellites sit. It's sort of a state, you know, where they can be stable over the over the equator. Is this where the Lagrange points are? Uh, no, so, so the Lagrange points are a lot further away because they're a stable oh. position where they can see, um, but they can see the space between Earth and the Sun. So those are the satellites that are looking for space where they're sort of geomagnetic storms coronal mass ejections coming off the sun let's say so the Lagrange one point is um I, oh I don't want to get my get my numbers wrong but I think it's in the in the in the realms of about a million kilometers from earth whereas geostationary satellites are 36,000 kilometers from earth so wow. sorry to interrupt there was... no 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 God. but it's anyway amazing. uh Papua New Guinea uh, yeah I was interested in the weather I was looking at the forecast for the launch and Clearly, they they they've chosen a, a location that's gonna have a good weather. Most of the time, have a good weather window. I mean, they in the tropics they have got these you know thunderstorms that pop up in the afternoon, but they tend to be over the higher ground a bit more inland. So I think they've picked a good spot for weather windows so that they can launch. But clearly, you know, there must be times when 
you know, at certain times of year, they may get tropical cyclones or something. So, you know, they, 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 they won't be able to launch if, if there's a, a tropical cyclone or if there's a lot of cloud for whatever reason or a whole, whole load of thunderstorms. Um, that would be very dangerous. So I think they're okay um, most of the time. But there's, uh, there's always somebody on site from the customer side. So the launch is facilitated by um, a, an industry partner, let's say. Ariana Space was doing the launch for, for that particular satellite in December. But there was a, a representative from EMETS out there as the customer. Uh, that was the, the director general. And if, if for whatever reason there was concerns about the safety of the launch or whatever, I think he, he, he was able to say, we're not launching so there's a I know there is sometimes a bit of a, a discussion close to launch as to whether or not they can and can't and obviously there's pressures both way they want to be safe but they, they've got a particular window where they they want to launch a satellite there's a lot to consider like the fueling of the satellite and if they delay too many times they need to um, take the satellite off the launcher and refuel or you know take the fuel out and then refuel so there's there's lots of considerations let's say in whether or not they should launch um thankfully I wasn't involved in any of those I was just gonna say I would have hated to be the forecaster that day <laughs> yeah I mean the forecasters on the ground I don't know who is doing it it's it's a I think it may have been um it may have been Meteo France because um I think French Guiana is is linked to, to France but no, it'd be fun. I mean, I, I always thought that would be a fun job, to be honest. It's a bit like forecasting for the Formula One, you know. It's, it's nothing like a, a bit of stress to keep going. Yeah, I know, to get the adrenaline. Going. People are like, yeah, let's make the decision, let's yeah. go. <laughs> um, before we move on, Jenny, what's what's the future for you? So let's just say you could wave a magic wand. Obviously, I know you love your job now, but, you know. I've only been in the, the job for, <laughs> for five months. It's a bit hard to to tell. I, th- I think that I, I definitely need to, to give this job time. There's so much to learn. I can't even tell you. We've got a huge long list of satellites that are coming up to be launched. Um, and I feel like I'm only scraping the surface of knowing what's going on right now. So this is going to be this is going to be us for a while, hopefully. But I mean, I, I, longer term, I don't know. I, I really love um, I'm obviously a meteorologist at heart, but I've, I've really taken to the managing to the, to the senior management side. I like that you can have involvement in those sort of strategic conversations around where these organizations are going and and what they're going to focus on. I love my time at ECMWF as well. I wouldn't uh, discount going back there or to another international organization. There's there's, there's some other options. I think the way my career trajectory has gone has just been about what opportunities have arisen. So I I don't think I could ever possibly guess you know, I don't know if you had it, but when I was at the Met Office, they used to encourage us to write a five-year um, sort of career plan, and it never went to plan. No. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really interesting exercise, but it never yeah. went to plan. So I just think we just sort of live out each six months as we go, and we see yeah. what happens. But it sounds like the future is in weather. Yeah, I hope so. I weather think- and science. I think it's, I, I need my work to have purpose. And I think weather is very useful for that because, you know, I mean, I remind my teams about it all the time because they're engineers, they're, site, they're scientists, engineers, physicists, mathematicians. And I, and I think they know why we do what we do, but I sort of say, you know, 
we are doing this because at the end of the day, there are forecasters using this data to issue warnings and save lives. And uh, that's why it's important that we get this right. And that is enough to inspire everybody to work as hard as they do. Brilliant. <laughs> Jenny, we're going to have to move on because we'll just end up running out of time and we can keep on asking you questions. So Gemma, do you want to do take it away and put the get to know me round? Yeah, let's get straight to it. So what's your favourite season? Definitely spring. It's party season. It's party season in our house. My kids, my husband's birthdays are all in the spring. We have balloons everywhere. The flowers are coming out. It's the best season. Do you have a favourite cloud? I think the humble cumulus humulus. Just little, little, little fluffy cumulus clouds. Yeah. I love the cumulus humulus cloud, and I'll tell you why. Because it is the point at which convection has started. And it tells you so much about how your day is already going, if your taffy told you that or not. Absolutely. Like, here, here, <laughs> here, here. Would you prefer jammy dodgers or Jaffa cakes? Definitely Jaffa cakes. Can't beat Ooh. them. Yeah. Do you like jammy dodgers? I do. I do. I do anything. I'm not fussy when it comes to food, but I do like a Jaffa cake. It doesn't oh. have to be a branded one either. This some the. Uh, so I know. Yeah. Pretty good alternatives out there. Lots too many. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have a superpower, what would it be? That's a very good question. You should have prepped me with these questions. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a superpower, I definitely want to just to be able to, to um, not time travel, but teleport just to get to holiday now get to that beach not have to travel That's yeah interesting. somebody we spoke to recently said the same thing as well they love to be somewhere else but they hate traveling mm-hmm. talking about traveling if you had to pick would you prefer the beach or the mountains always the beach oh yeah. really why yeah well we spent 10 years of our life uh in devon mm. within about a kilometer of the sea amazing and now we've moved to the middle of Germany <laughs> with no beach. <laughs> so I'm uh, very much craving the beach. And um, I think every almost every time we go on holiday now, it's going to have to be to the seaside. Oh, it can't be a nice walk along no, the beach. No, can't. Lovely. If you could choose one country in the world to forecast the weather for, where would it be? Wow, wow, what a good question. <sighs> I think I've already done it. I think the UK has got to be the most interesting place to focus the weather for. Tick. Yeah. yeah. Achieved. Life goal achieved. Mixing it up a little bit now. If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Great. Okay. Good one. I would love to be a pineapple. Why? <laughs> because I always think you... Um, they look really pretty. They they they've got a lovely, refreshing taste. It's interesting. It's fun to eat pineapple. Yeah, love it. I like it. I like it. And hard exterior, sweet inside. <laughs> lovely, sweet and juicy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you can invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any any historical time frame or even a fictional character. Who would it be? 
one person to dinner mm. okay well we can give you two if you really can't decide wow I, I needed to have done my homework for this show <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, let me think I think I would be very interested to speak to Charles Darwin for sure yeah yeah great one yeah it's a great answer he was was well ahead of his time and just to get you know also the things he was coming out with got a lot of pushback you know even now people (laughs) question it but he had the confidence to go with what he saw he was a great scientist and uh yeah I think he'd be an interesting one to talk to he'd be fascinating that is a great answer (laughs) And our final question is, what's one thing that you wish everybody knew about the weather? I wish that everybody knew what goes into a weather forecast because people just accept it's there on their phone. And I think if they really knew all the amazing people behind the forecast, all the technology, all the effort that goes into getting the data, running the forecast, improving the forecast they'd have so much more confidence in it and there'd be no question about it, you know. But I think when people learn about all that stuff that's behind the forecast, it it, it just gives power to our message. Here, here. Yeah, everyone's so quick to say, you got the weather wrong. We didn't, we (laughs) might have got it 10 miles one way or another, but, you know. Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think think we all wish, definitely think we all wish that. Um, before we leave, do you have a weather wisdom for us? So have you got something you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, I, th- I think um, something I would I didn't really know about when, before I joined Jumetsa was how important it is to tidy up space once you're done with it. So, um, you know, long I guess historically people just put up a satellite and not really think about it. It just sort of stopped working and they left it there. But these orbits that the satellites use get get very cluttered. So they they there's requirements now. There's actually space regulations for when you launch a satellite. You need to have uh, a plan for how you are going to um, deorbit your satellite. You can park your satellite in a a graveyard orbit. So you can actually put your satellite in a little satellite cemetery. <laughs> Um, so you remove, you maneuver it to a specific graveyard orbit, and then it's out of the way of where the the operating satellites need to be. Or you can deorbit the satellite, and as you've seen, you know, they they come back to Earth usually uh, in the ocean somewhere or break up. But yeah, it's really important. There's proper regulations and, and laws around uh, how you tidy up your space after you're done with it. Graveyard satellites. I love it. <laughs> we always leave these podcasts with saying that we didn't know before, and graveyard satellite is like that's just like something that like I just had no the idea most about. Coolest yeah. buzzword ever. That's where they go to die, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. I guess space is getting pretty cluttered. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast tonight. If anybody wants to follow you on social media, uh, can you yeah. give us your information? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Jenny Rourke. Um, I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. Um, you can definitely find me there. You should definitely check out your LinkedIn. It's pretty cool. Oh, cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Jenny. And if people want to follow us on social media, on Instagram, we are For the Love of Weather. 
on Twitter. We are the number four love of weather. Um, and if you could rate and review the podcast and share it, that would really help us. It helps other people find our podcast. And if we can share our love of the weather with lots more people, that would be amazing. Um, and as always, we just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.